Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. The Toronto Blue Jays lose the wild card opener yesterday to the Minnesota Twins by a score of three to one. Kevin Gosman has some trouble in the first. Kevin Gosman has some trouble throughout, at least throughout the first three innings. Not super efficient with his pitches. Minnesota Twins, yes, executing the strategy. We talked about them executing in prior meetings, laying off the splitter. Uh, Kevin Gosman trying to respond by dotting the fastball a little lower in the zone. Command just not there for Kevin Gosman. Whether you think he was tipping something, um, which we can't prove or disprove, uh, you dig into where those pitches landed, the lack of break relative to average on his splitter. Just wasn't throwing it well. Even if uh, even if it was something the Twins deserve a lot of credit for laying off of, the splitter wasn't breaking as much. Uh, he was missing by a good amount when he was missing. So if he's tipping, you know maybe that's uh, that's extra evidence for the batter quickly because splitters just weren't as good as his usual splitter is. It was a tough one. He did eventually figure it out in the fourth inning, struck out the side all on splitters. But at that point, John Schneider went away from him. He'd already given up two home runs to returning rookie Royce Lewis, who came off an IL stint and looked incredible right away. Um, John Schneider goes away from Gosman after four, mixes five different relievers for the final four innings. And yeah, it's using a lot of guys, but the Blue Jays managed to keep the Twins total at three all that way. They add a run in the sixth. They run into an out on the base paths in the fourth. I think it was, uh, yeah, in the fourth. So uh, in the fourth, Bo Bichette singles, Alejandro Kirk's hit by a pitch. Kevin Kiermeyer hits an infield single. And um, with the defense not in position to still field that infield single, as Bo Bichette hits third base, he tried to take home. Carlos Correa makes a pretty tremendous play to come over from shortstop, barehand the ball, and throw Bo Bichette out at home. Probably an ill-advised go. Went through the signal from Luis Rivera there. Uh, understand trying to make a play. Carlos Correa made a better one. That's a tough one. In the sixth, Bo and Kirk are both on base again. Kevin Kiermeyer singles, scores one of them, but that's it. Vlad had a leadoff double that got stranded in the eighth. In the ninth, Whit Merrifield managed a two-out walk, but that got left stranded uh, after a tremendous play by Donovan Solano was made at first base on, on a George Springer hit that looked like it was maybe going to squeak through the right side and keep that inning going a little while longer. It didn't. This game plays out in a way that you've seen a lot of Blue Jays games play out this year. Um, you know, first inning issues, they've been an issue all year. The Jays get down 2 nothing in the first frame here. The inability to come back and play from behind has felt like an issue all year. Certainly the inability to get to certainly the inability to get to quality starting pitching and getting into a bullpen earlier. Uh, those have been issues. Making misjudgments or misexecutions on the base paths. That's been an issue. Um, the, the big thing from this one, yeah, there's gonna we're going to talk a lot today about Kevin Gosman and the splitter fastball mix and what the Twins were seeing or, or weren't seeing. The two home runs Royce Lewis hit were fastballs that missed their spot by a lot. Um, that, you know, probably, certainly the them laying off the splitter didn't, uh, didn't help things. But when you have a catcher set up low and outside and you groove one, inside at 97 uh, kind of on that inner third of the plate a guy's talented as Royce Lewis might be able to turn on it and then the one he took the other way a little later was pretty much center cut so some mistakes in there uh, around the twins strong discipline Royce Lewis is probably the headline item for us today but 
it was a pretty big deal in Minnesota, Royce Lewis or otherwise, Pablo Lopez or otherwise. That was the first time the Minnesota Twins had won a playoff game uh, in their last 19 attempts. They'd lost 18 in a row, dating back to 2004, when our first guest, Twins analyst for Bali Sports North, Justin Morneau, was on that team. Justin, uh, good morning. What is the energy like in Minnesota right now? That felt like a big, big exhale win for that fan base in that city. That's a good way to sum it up. Uh, it was an energy in the ballpark that I hadn't really seen before. There was a little bit of uh, angst and a little bit of nervousness, but also at the same time, when that final out was made, there was some relief from everybody there, happiness, I don't know, everything. That, it's just been such a tough road for for basically all Minnesota sports, for Minnesota men's sports, you know, the Minnesota Lynx won WNBA title a few times, but... Twins are the last team to win a championship, so there's been a lot of pain in this city from the Wilds, from losing the North Stars in between that, to the Vikings, to, you know, it's just been the Timberwolves have been struggling. I mean, everything's been a battle across every sport, so it's <laughs> kind of like Cleveland's drought or, or some of these other teams that haven't won anything in a while. It was almost like all of that was celebrated yesterday at the ballpark, so I think it was, uh, it was a much-needed much needed win and, and some luck finally, you know, turned the twins way and it just ended up being a game that they really needed and, and ended up finding a way to win. And, and that crowd was, was tremendous. Obviously the crowd there at target field was very, very loud throughout. And, and you know, certainly when the game ended, you, you could sense the moment, even through the television broadcast, even prior to the game, I thought the twins showed a good, you know, recognition and appreciation of that. Um, Pablo Lopez, you know, showing up in the Johan Santana jersey. And I know that, you know, there's the Venezuelan connection there, but also Santana was the last starter when the twins last won a game. Lopez had some good quotes earlier in the week as well about this team, even though, you know, they weren't on those 2004 teams or, or all of these years leading up to now. Um, how big do you think it is to have a guy like Pablo Lopez, you know, embrace that challenge and, and kind of, yeah, I mean, just embrace it and want to be the figure that's helping change that for the fan base? Yeah, I think for it's not quite the, the Cubs of, you know, the Goats or, uh, or the Red Sox, you know, the curse of the Babe. But at the same time, I think when those players embraced that and said, you know what, we're going to break this curse and we're going to find a way, and, and they kind of talked about it, I think this group has talked about it a little bit more than in years past. Obviously, they only talk about it when they're asked. It's not like they're walking around the clubhouse going, hey, we're going to break this thing. And everyone's aware of it. So it's, it's, I think they found a way to embrace it and then just say, you know what, that wasn't our loss, but we're going to go out there and, and we're going to win a ball game. And I think it seems so simple because any team on any given day can, can beat anyone. It was just <laughs> such a string of bad luck and bad games and one mistake ended up you know, costing you a, a game. So it was uh, something this group has, has talked about winning and they've, they've kind of looked it head on and, and they've come together as a group. And I think they really believe in themselves and they believe in each other. So it's, uh, it's, it's just a... Uh, now it's only one game. Obviously, doesn't win a series, but I think they're moving in the right direction. At least that's what they feel.
Yeah, it certainly feels uh, better to, to be up one nothing than down one nothing. I think the Jays have been swept in each of the two wild card series previous to that, so I don't know, but I'd imagine it feels uh, a little better to be in their spot. So you, you mentioned, you know, sometimes it, it had been one mistake here and there for the Twins over the years. It, it was one or two mistakes for the Blue Jays yesterday. Kevin Gosman struggled early in that game, and, you know, the talk going into the game was in three of the last four times he'd see the Twins, the Twins did a really, really good job laying off of the splitter and chasing the splitter out of the zone. They had done that better than just about any team. There were some theories that, hey, maybe he'd been tipping something, maybe the way the catcher set up too early was tipping something. Um, I, I guess when I look at where those pitches were located and how they were breaking, to me it's just, you know, and I'm not, you know, advanced enough to know to be able to pick up live if he's tipping something, but it, it really did seem like it's a disciplined thing for us to lay off of pretty much anything low because generally speaking it's splitter low and fastball high um whether he was he was tipping or it was just the discipline element how difficult is it to stick to a game plan like that line up wide of hey if it's low if it means taking a strike we're gonna do that because we just don't want to chase the splitter yeah i think this group just having faced him so often i mean these guys have so many at bats off them there when you have a successful game plan against a guy that good and everyone kind of sees it, you feed off of each other. And I think these guys, I, from everyone I've talked to, I, you know, I asked them cause you know, talking to whether it's Joe Siddle or, or whoever's asked, you know, today is Gosman tipping. Have you heard anything from your guys? I asked the guys, they said, no, we didn't have anything on them. We just had a good game plan. And then, and you're right. It's, it's, if it's up, it's a fastball. If it's down, you take it and you take your chances. If he's not locating that, that, you know, fastball at the bottom part of the zone, you're right, it, it seems to be a pretty simple approach, and you just stay disciplined within that approach, and I think they've done a good job of that. So I don't – the tipping stuff is – I don't know. I mean, it's so hard when you're standing in the batter's box to sit there and, and trust a tip. You know, I, you, I remember David Robertson, who's still pitching now, when he was with the Yankees, he had a sub-2 ERA, and he tipped every single pitch he threw the entire season and still had – a great year. So even if you know what's coming, sometimes it doesn't really make a difference. But we had every pitch that Robertson was throwing. I struck out looking because I knew what was coming, and I didn't. You know, you, you get kind of caught in the middle of it. You're not really reacting. You're you're saying, okay, yeah, that is a that is a cutter. All right, yeah, that is a curveball. And so I think to just say either if you know what's coming or if you trust the tip, it, it's one thing. But to stand in the batter's box and then have enough confidence if a guy is doing that to take fastballs or to trust that he's not going to just hang the split. You know, if you know it's coming, then you're probably going to look for something up and you're, and you're probably going to try and, you know, hit it hard as opposed to just taking it every time. So I think it's a, the tipping stuff is, it's, unless it's obvious, it's hard to have confidence that, that you're not going to take fastballs down the middle or you're not going to, you know, miss a pitch that's very hittable. So I think, I think they just have had a good game plan against them. They, they managed to stay disciplined as a lineup and, and they've just done a good job of, of finding a way to put together good at-bats against one of the best pitchers in the game. Yeah, and this is a team that, you know, season long has been fine with strikeouts. Hey, if you get behind an account, whatever, we lead the league in strikeouts. It's not the end of the world. And they're, as a result, a, a really high walk team as well. And I, I'd imagine some of this is, well, if you if you swing at a splitter low, you're not going to be able to put that lift into it that, that the Twins like their guys to put into pitches uh, as well. 
um, Justin, when you look at this team, not just for now, but but moving forward, how encouraging is it that they're able to execute and stick to a game plan like this with a pretty young group of core hitters? I, I think of an Edouard Julien. I, I have a million Royce Lewis questions for you after this one. But there are some young guys in this lineup who are, you know, able to execute that specific and that discipline oriented a game plan at a pretty young experience level here. Yeah, I think especially for Royce Lewis, who played less than 100 games between double-A AA and triple-A with all the with the knee injuries that he's had. He's had two serious knee injuries, and he's missed the development time that almost every other player, including the COVID year, almost every other player across the minor leagues got. So what he's doing at the big league level, he's able to execute a game plan. It's, it's really incredible. If you look at his development path, it, it's, I don't know, we, we watch in awe, but I think... The Twins are in a really good spot right now as far as backing up the prospects. And by that, I mean you have quality at the big league level. You have a team that's trying to win. And whoever makes it on that major league roster has forced their way there. We had you know, Trevor Larnick, a guy who's not on the playoff roster, but who was on the opening day roster. And I think it's, it's incredible that the depth this team has. And when you're in a spot like the Twins are where – all right, we, we have our best guys at the big league level as opposed to the, the top prospect who just happens to be in AAA and, and is on the roster. Twins aren't really in that spot anymore. They've got Correa locked down at short, and they, they're kind of filling the positions around that. So everyone who makes it up to the big league level is a little bit further along in their development than, say, a team that's rebuilding and, and is losing 100 games and just letting the young players play every day. The Twins aren't in that spot. They're in that spot where – those roster spots are valuable right now on a team that's trying to win, so they're they're kind of further along in the development. So they have a game plan when they step in the batter's box. They have an idea of the strike zone, and they, they have an ability to feed off of the veteran guys who who have plenty of experience. I mean, Correa's a voice for so many of these young hitters and, and kind of teaching them how to sift through the data that they want to know from the analytics department and say, hey, this is useful, this is what helps me, and it's really helped our young guys you know, grow and develop and, and just turn this lineup around and, and really, you know, add to the approach and the, and the, the comfort level of these guys at the big league level. Their development has you know, been pretty rapid, but I think it's based on the pressure's not on these young guys. You look at a Bobby Witt Jr., the franchise basically rests on his shoulders. We're bringing young guys up, and there's already guys, you know, you got Buxton who's hurt right now, but you've got these guys, these established guys that, you can lean on and the pressure's on those guys to perform and not necessarily for these rookies to come up and the weight of the world isn't on their shoulders. But hey, if it was on their shoulders, Royce Lewis looks ready for it. He hits a pair of uh, pretty unbelievable home runs yesterday. Um, man, before even getting into the specifics of those two home runs, the fact that he was able to, and you mentioned it, he lost a lot of developmental time because of the pandemic and because of injuries. He missed a chunk of time this year because of injury, and he wasn't playing down the stretch, no rehab assignment. He comes back in, and a young kid like this is able to contribute right away, find his timing right away. Um, just how special of a hitting prospect are we dealing with here? I mean, <clears throat> there's very few players at his you know service time level. I don't know if there's anyone at this point that I would take over him. And there's there's arguments to be made for Adley Rushman and you know Gunnar Henderson and, and Bobby Witt Jr. And I mean, I would put him right along with those guys as far as building a franchise. He's just he has something. You know, when he's in the room, he has such a positive attitude, but guys gravitate towards him. He is a, he really is a, just a special human being. I'm a baseball player, yes, but 
he also just brings everybody up around him. He's one of those guys that when he's in the room, there's five people around him just having a conversation, just gravitating towards him because he has that leadership ability. He has a, a certain belief. I mean, he's one of those guys that when you're around him, he makes you better because he has, you know, such a positive outlook and he has such a confidence in himself that's it's not cocky. It's it's just he's he believes in everything that he's doing and I think it rubs off on those people around him. And I think for somebody at this stage in his career to have the to have the confidence and have the ability to rise to the moment like he does, it's it's very rare and he is someone that I mean, it's the reason he was 1-1, right? He was the first overall pick in the draft because of that. It's just the only reason we haven't seen him, you know, at the big league level two years ago is because of the injuries, because of the COVID year and everything else. So he is as good as it gets as far as my opinion, in my opinion, as far as riding to the moment and and embracing the, you know, the tough stuff. I mean, he was first overall. So every time you walk into a, a ballpark, everyone knows in the minor leagues, you know, who the first overall pick was, you know, every time Jackson holiday walks into a ballpark, every single player in that field and most of the fans in the stands know that's the number one prospect in baseball. That's the guy who was, you know, first overall pick. And, and so these guys deal with this pressure from the time they get drafted. And I think he's embraced that. And and some guys don't have, don't have the ability to, to enjoy that. And he enjoys it. He, he welcomes it and, and he hopes for those big moments. He expects himself to come through and, and he's done that early in his career. I mean, last night, but also the Grand Slams and, and everything else. It, it really, truly is a special player. Yeah, and, and last night is pretty ridiculous. I mean, your first two career plate appearances in the playoffs and you homer, and not only homer, but, you know, he took that first one, he pulled the first one 97 on the inner third, and Gosman missed his spot by a lot, but it's still 97 on the inner third, and he pulled on in a hurry, and then the other one later was a little more center cut, but he takes it to deep right center field. Um, when it comes to the ability to hit a fastball and take a good fastball both to the pull side and to the opposite field. I mean, I, I know uh, there there was a board up. I think Chris Black put a board up on the broadcast, or, or maybe it's for today, but he's right there with Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani in a small sample in terms of handling fastballs. Um, that ability to not only handle fastballs, but handle them to multiple fields, how difficult is that, not just for a rookie, but again, he's up there with Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani. This is a, a premium fastball hitter um I, I came away i mean I, I obviously we know he's good but the ability to do what he did with two different fastballs take them to two different places like that i, I came away pretty amazed that at those two home runs yeah i think the first one obviously is impressive he was able to pull the hands in but the second one for me is, is something that's very few hitters in the game of baseball can do what he did there and i think he was giving himself a chance if it was a split to take it but he's he's young enough and his hands are fast enough that he was able to hit a fastball to the opposite field off the facing of the second deck. It looked like a left-handed hitter hit it. I mean, that thing came off as true as it could be. And, and that was just pitch recognition and then trusting his hands. And I think he is a guy that can do that, can do that. And not everyone can do that. I mean, if everyone could do that, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't be talking about it as much, but he's, he just has that ability to, the weight on fastballs, they said that was the exact same as his first at-bat in pro ball. His first home run he hit in the minor leagues was almost identical to that. A home run to right to right center field, basically on a line 40 feet off the ground. It was it was just incredible. So he's had that ability since he was drafted. That was one of the things that the Twins loved about him. But he is, he is rare in today's game, but he has enough trust that he can let a fastball like that travel and hit it out to the opposite field. And, and there's very few guys across baseball that can do that.
Justin, what is the feeling like on the Jays side of things when, you know, obviously baseball is a team game. Pablo Lopez had a really good start. The bullpen was really good. But, you know, Royce Lewis is the guy that beat you on that side of the ball. And, you know, the twins are too deep. There are too many guys that can hit for power maybe to just be like, hey, don't let Royce Lewis beat you. Make someone else beat you. But Royce Lewis was kind of the guy that, that beat you. How, how do you. How do you handle that if you're heading into today if you're in the Blue Jays clubhouse? Well, I think I think we saw it in his third at bat. They didn't really give him anything to hit. And if you saw what he did the first two at bats, you're going, okay, let's change the game plan a little bit. We, we're either going to throw him a bunch of soft stuff and see if we can get him a chase and let the other guys beat us. So the key for the Twins, obviously, is going to be in the key for the Jays as well, is keeping the guys off base in front of them. So you have an open base. You have somewhere to put them, and then you try and get them to swing at your pitch. I think if you're going after him, and you're in a situation where you've got first and second or you've got bases loaded, you've got nowhere to put them, you're going to have to make some decisions on, on how you want to approach that. And I think so the key for, I mean, the key for facing Royce Lewis is more of how do you approach the guys around him, and you have to keep the guys off base. You have to make sure you don't walk Julian. I think that's one of the biggest things is we saw Julian's patience at the plate. He will strike out looking from time to time, but he also has great discipline within the strike zone. I think it actually caught a break in that game. Julian's at bat where he struck out looking on the on the slider in was actually a ball. The bases should have been loaded uh, with one out. Instead, it was first and second, two out. So, you know, if you're able to kind of navigate the guys in front of them, then you're able to pitch to Royce Lewis in a little different way. But I think the positive is that you were, that you were able to handle everyone from the Jays' side other than Royce Lewis. But the scary thing is you lost the game when you held the entire lineup down except for one guy. So are you going to be able to, are you going to trust that you can hold off the entire lineup that has been well-balanced and in power from top to bottom for two straight games? I don't know. And I guess you can look at it the same from the twin side. Are they going to be able to hold down this Jays lineup and hold them down to one run kind of the way they did yesterday? So I think it's a really interesting matchup. It's a really interesting series, and it's a really interesting game today. Of It's, it's two very evenly matched teams, and, and a couple of breaks, a couple of missed pitches, a couple of missed plays either way can turn the series. So I think it's still wide open at this point, but obviously the twins are in a better spot with if they get the lead early, Jays are going to have to go to all, you know, do you go to your game three starter early? Do you go to your, do you go to Romano in in the third or fourth inning? If there's a, to snuff out a rally, I mean, you're, you're going to have to handle this game completely different when you're down one game in a two game elimination. So it's, it's a, it's a challenging spot. I think game one was a huge win for the Twins, but this thing's far from over yet. And if you're the Jays, you only got one run off Pablo Lopez, and hey, here's another Cy Young candidate for you in uh, in Sonny Gray. Uh, Justin, before I let you go here, with Sonny Gray, you know, he's, I think, six inches shorter than Pablo Lopez. He doesn't get the same extension down the mound. When you're seeing these two guys back-to-back, um, yeah, Pablo Lopez throws a sweeper and a changeup, so does Sonny Gray, and Sonny Gray will mix and match a lot of stuff. But that difference in how far down the mound or how short up the mound a release is coming at you. How much does that change if you're a hitter? What does that do to you in the box? Well, I think it's different day to day, but you, if you have experience off of them, you know the difference and you kind of prepare for it now. I think guys are a lot better spot as far as the pitching machines. They can, you know, set it on, okay, this is Sonny Gray's breaking ball. This is Pablo Lopez's fastball. And you kind of get that same spin. You get that same Right, so I think guys are a little better prepared to handle different guys, and and they have, you know, once you have experience, okay, I remember this guy's fastball. It's got late run in on my hands from a right-handed hitter, or you know that breaking ball, the the curveball, and the and the sweeper, two different pitches. 
but I, I know what the break of each one's going to do, and I think pitch recognition is, is so important. But I think they're so far, you know, apart contrast as far as pitcher-wise go. You just completely reset the approach and you look for something different because they're they are two completely different pitchers. I mean, Sonny will spin it, he'll throw that cutter, he'll throw the slider, he'll throw the sweeper, he'll throw the curveball, and I think the challenge for him is you see spin, but you don't know how much it's going to break. And I think if if he's able to locate his breaking ball to both left-handed and right-handed hitters, the different versions of it, he's very hard to hit. And then he's got enough fastball where you don't just sit off because he can run it up there to 94. He can run it up there to 94 with movement. So he's he's not a guy who's just flipping breaking ball after breaking ball, and, and you can just sit off because, number one, he can locate it. And number two, he can throw his fastball in the zone for strikes. So you can get caught with two strikes looking at a fastball because he has command and he has life on that pitch as well. Now, I've heard Sonny Gray can teach a lot of people how, how to spin a baseball better. You're throwing up the first pitch tonight. Are we going to see some breaking stuff from you, or are you going straight heater? <laughs> Just trying not to bounce it. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Morneau, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. I really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck with that first pitch later. Yeah, thank you. I need it. Justin Morneau, uh, Twins analyst for Bali Sports North and uh, uh, an advisor in the Twins organization, of course, a part of those teams. The last time the Twins made a little bit of noise in the postseason, and they don't have to worry about that 18-game playoff losing streak any longer. A streak the Toronto Blue Jays have to worry about. They're down one nothing in the wild card. They got swept in two games in the wild card in 2020. They got swept in two games in the wild card in 2022. They don't want to head into 2024 coming off of three consecutive sweeps. You don't want to come off of, or not consecutive, but three three sweeps in your last three playoff appearances over four seasons. Uh, you want to come off a win regardless, but you certainly don't want to have another sweep hung on you. Let's take a break. See how Keegan Matheson's feeling down in the Twin Cities. Uh, Keegan joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a song called Minnesota. Where we go now to talk to MLB.com and BlueJays.com's number one guy, Keegan Matheson, our number one guy. How you doing, buddy? Doing very well, Blake. How you doing? Uh, I've been better. Uh, it would have been, I mean, I guess I was going to say I've been better. The Jays could be up one nothing, but I, I have no experience. Maybe I would feel worse in that case. Uh, that That is not something that they have done in recent vintage. Uh, oh, boy, did yesterday play out kind of as an avatar of the of the whole season, you, you've had a night to sit with it here. How are you feeling about the way yesterday's game went? It looked like a lot of the rest, yep. frankly. And if you are going to, over the course of 162 games, uh, continue to believe that it will change and get better, it has to, you know, because otherwise it's, it's difficult to believe in. And the Blue Jays ran into the exact same issues that have faced them all season. And... I'm well aware that a lot of these conversations come off as very critical of the Blue Jays, but I think it's relative to expectations. Uh, I know they had a winning record. I know they are in the postseason. I'm down the road from the stadium. I get that. But it's about being a team who can win in the postseason and take that next step, evolve a bit. 
And what we saw last night was Kevin Gosman getting no run support. We've seen that. I've wrote that story so many times I can write it blind at this point. Uh, we saw an out uh, on the bases from Bo Bichette that wasn't as blatant an error as we've seen through the regular season. Carlos Correa, what a play. But these are the same things we've seen all year, the same conversations we've had. And all of a sudden, there's you know, there's only tomorrow. There, there's not, we'll figure it out tomorrow, next week, next month. It's today, period, or you're done. It, yeah, that's it. It's, uh, you know, this is... Uh... Look, I'm a, I'm a stats guy. I like the numbers. I, I like trying to, you know, regress what we've seen to what we'd expect and try to try to use that stuff to figure out what might happen over the course of 162. That stuff's gone at this point of the season. Like, it, there is not enough time over 162 games for stats and outcomes and things like that to reach where they're supposed to be. It's not 162 games is not a fair enough sample. Two or three games is not a fair enough sample. Um, so yeah, expected stats, expected batting average on a play, even some of the quotes of like, yeah, Matt Chapman hit that ball further than, you know, Royce Lewis's home run. Okay, cool. You're you're kind of out of time for that to uh, for that to even out. Now that can't really change what you're doing. Uh, but I do wonder, Keegan, what was the feeling in the clubhouse afterwards? I know John Schneider's comments were kind of what they always are, which is we got to trust the process and we got to trust that the good work we do will eventually turn to results. Um, was that the prevailing feeling? And I guess could you even have any other feeling other than that? Yeah, to an extent it has to be. And like you said, Blake, what John Schneider said after the game was uh, certainly similar to what we hear through the regular season. Uh, it's uh, I know not what a lot of fans want to hear. Uh, I'm also not naive enough to think that he goes into the clubhouse and tells <laughs> Bobachet what he tells me. You know, it's a, it's a different message. Uh, some things you say in the clubhouse because they matter. Uh, some things you say so, you know, Keegan will go away in a couple minutes. And that makes sense. I respect that. But in the clubhouse, I think the Blue Jays look to these veterans. We spoke to Brandon Belt after the game, and, and I, I think he was a good example of how you have to handle this. He said, listen, I've been in elimination games. I've won some of them. You know, he's lost some of them, too. And he knows how these work. There are some young players in this locker room, and Bo Bichette was a good example uh, when he was asked if he could draw an experience to, you know, to come back into the series. And he said, well, I haven't won a playoff game. You know, that's the reality that the Blue Jays are looking at right now. So they need to look to George Springer, to Brandon Belt, to these veterans who have been there and have at least seen a series like this be on the brink and come back. It's not about thinking about winning a World Series today. It's winning one game. You have to like your chances if you are the Blue Jays. Even very broadly speaking, Blake, in any situation like this, I, I typically lean towards the team that's playing for their lives to come out with a pretty good one. But this is where all of that talk of veterans and their value, this is what it's for. This is why you sign guys who are 30-plus and have been to the postseason. It's for these exact days, uh, these exact mornings, frankly, at breakfast, in the clubhouse, having lunch at BP. That's what they're for. And to your point, who was the best player yesterday? Probably Kevin Kiermeyer, who's been around the block in that regard a little bit. Um, so I'll, I'll use Kevin Kiermeyer to go back to Bo Bichette here. And uh, we get two instances in this game where Bo Bichette gets a hit. Alejandro Kirk gets on base via other means, either a walk or hit by a pitch. And then Kevin Kiermeyer hits a single. And in the sixth, the single got through. So it scored Bo Bichette. In the fourth, it was an infield single that 
was right there. Bobachek comes around third base. He has slowed down. He takes a little peek over the shoulder is the way it looked to me. And he sees that the ball hasn't been played yet. He takes off for home. You mentioned it earlier. Carlos Correa makes an unbelievable play. Comes over from the shortstop side, bare hands that thing, throws one. I think the throw was like 75 or 74 miles an hour or something like that. It's right on the money. Bobachek's thrown out. Um, we got to... We we always have to be careful with these things because, you know, the tendency is to evaluate them only by the way it turned out and Bobachet was out. Um, I watch it back and and I, I didn't love the move in real time. Admittedly, I didn't realize until I watched the replay that Carlos Correa was so far away from the ball when Bobachet first kind of turned on the Jets again and took off. Um, you know, I, I'd still probably come down on given how much he had slowed down. It, it maybe wasn't worth it, but how did you feel about it? And how did the team feel about it? If you got a chance to ask Bo or Schneider about it after the game? Yeah, that, that was an incredible play. Like Correa is a not healthy. <laughs> he is with his full weight out on his toes, bent over in one motion. If he makes that play in a big game in the world series, we're talking about it like an all time play. It's, you know, you know how people never shut up about that Derek Jeter scoop and toss the catcher. That's how we'd be talking about it. It was an incredible play by Correa that I appreciated way more watching back because my eyes were on Bo. Now, when we talked to Bo after the game, I asked him, you know, did you look back over your shoulder? How did you think Correa was there? And, and he, he said very simply, I, I went because I thought I was going to be safe. And Fair enough. <laughs> frankly, that's a fair enough answer. I, I kind of nodded and said, hey, that, I get it. And this is kind of that classic example of maybe when you're tagging up on a shallow fly ball, it's making the defender make a perfect play, uh, for example, is that quote you hear often. Now, Louis Rivera at third base was kind of starting to hold up that stop sign rate as Bo was rounding. As you're doing that in real time, that's moving very fast in a very loud stadium. Full credit to Correa there, but you've got to be awfully tempted by how that would have looked with the bases loaded. Uh, That would have been the Blue Jays' one big chance. Very easy to say in, in hindsight. And if you trim Bobachet's wings and don't let him be aggressive like that, he's not the player he is today. But in those moments, with the, the maybe unfair benefit of, of hindsight, it's a, a tough one. John Schneider said last night he hadn't exactly had a chance to look back on it. And Bo, uh, very simply, very directly, and, and I guess very fairly, said, hey, I, I went because I thought I'd be safe. And that's, uh, I think, where any reasoning starts for that. Yeah, and hey, he's your—he's arguably your best player, right? So if you're going to trust someone's judgment, uh, maybe it's his. Now, this is also one where, you know, I was talking with some people after the game about, you know, the analytics or what the numbers say about that end. And to be honest, the lower the offensive environment, the more trouble you're having scoring runs. You don't want to burn outs, but an extra 90 feet or getting a run across becomes more valuable, right? Because it's more scarce. However, in that particular situation, even if, and I don't think Bo Bichette ran through all these things in his head, I think like you, like he said, he thought he'd be safe, so he ran. You know, bases loaded, Matt Chapman up. This is the first time Pablo Lopez had looked anything but, you know, absolutely pinpoint precision and sharp. Um, so I, I think, yeah, again, like I said off the top, I probably lean toward I, I would have preferred he not go. Um, but again, like you said, you, you, can, you can justify it. I, I wonder, Keegan, in your opinion, and this is, uh, you know, Bo doesn't have to wear this. I, I just want your take on it. The fact that the Blue Jays have struggled in this regard all year. I, I've used the stat on the show before, and I don't have the exact number handy, but I think they finished the year fourth 
in outs on the bases. And this is before we, we incorporate stolen bases and caught stealing. They were fourth in outs on the bases, and the three teams that were out more were all far more aggressive. So on a percentage basis, the Jays not only had a lot of outs on the bases, but percentage-wise, it was not great for them. Is that something where 162 games in that should nudge your base strategy to be a little more conservative in those situations, even if you are having trouble scoring runs? It should. Ideally it really should. And I have more of an appetite for those outs on the bases. When you're talking about teams like would be at the top of that, Blake, if you are an organization that is drafting and developing and promoting fast, aggressive base runners. That's your identity. Hey, cool. You'll, you'll take a few losses along the way. You hope to come out in the green at the end. That's a little more okay. But the Blue Jays are a fast team. They have a lot of good base runners. But this is a bit of a newer identity to them, trying to be the good base running team, trying to be the aggressive team. There have been times where it's backfired. Aggression will always backfire a little bit, but you need to come out in the positive. And one factor that I look to, Blake, and it's another thing you can't measure too much, but the Blue Jays have been a kind of of middle-of-the-pack offensive team and not a team that hits for a lot of power. So when that is the case, and this is something else that Bo is not running through his head, but maybe it gets ingrained over a season, when you need to take that extra 90 feet, when you need to create some chaos on the bases to try to get some offense going, that's when you might push the issue maybe a little bit more than it needs to be pushed. If you're a team that is absolutely slugging, if you're the 2021 Blue Jays offense with Marcus Semien, Vladdy playing like an MVP, it's a little easier to stop and say, hey, 10 seconds from now, I'm going to jog home when this guy hits a grand slam. But if you're a team that's trying and scraping and fighting and clawing to create offense, that's when every once in a while uh, you might expand or stretch yourself trying to make something happen. And in baseball, uh, I think if there's anything I learn each year, it's that when a player tries to do something outside of themselves, it rarely goes well. So it was in the in a similar line of thinking there of like, hey, what's the offensive environment? What do I need in, in this particular situation? I wonder, Keegan, then how you felt about the decision to in the seventh inning uh, go to Whit Merrifield. So Dalton Varsho. Excuse me, Dalton Varsho is uh, due up there. It's Caleb Thielbar in there. Um, we, I, I don't want to do anything with reverse platoon splits and small samples. I, I'm not a big believer in them, um, you know, unless there's like a terrific reason for it. And I don't think with Varsho uh, there, there is. I think he just had a, an okay stretch of time against lefties this year. Um, so I understand, you know, going away from a lefty there to a righty, but the decision to prioritize that or to make that change with a priority on contact ability instead of someone with a little bit more extra base oomph. I, I would have expected in that spot, I think, David Schneider to come into the game rather than Whit Merrifield. I assume the thinking was, well, we're down more than one run. Whit Merrifield's also going to stay in the game as a left fielder here, so we don't burn two guys for one substitution here. Um, but it did strike me that they went with the the more contact-oriented guy rather than the guy with a little bit more extra base potential uh, against the lefty. What did you make of that move? Yeah, especially with 14 position players, uh, there should be a little more flexibility to do the, the kind of double replacement. Let one guy pinch it, throw someone else in the defense if you want to. Now, 
this conversation would have looked a lot different if there was a line drive that eventually got over Whit Merrifield's head that Dalton Varshu would have caught. But <laughs> you need to chase offense. You need to chase offense. And Davis Schneider, I, I think, uh, you know, he, he did not tear down the stretch. He had a couple of good games at the end that I really like to see from him, that final game with some hard-hit balls. He is your big chance off the bench to change a game. You're rolling the dice a little bit, but with his power, with his uppercut swing that creates so much loft on the ball, if you are trying to chase a home run and chase a big blow, I think he's a great option. You know, the Blue Jays in going to Merrifield, they were – betting on that single. They were betting on that double to try to get things rolling, but wouldn't surprise me if you do see uh, a David Schneider at some point today, especially if the Blue Jays are chasing because he is that power bat. You know, we talked about it a lot after the trade deadline that the Blue Jays still need that righty power bat somewhere. David Schneider's that. He came out of nowhere. He had an incredible season. And beyond the hype and the cult hero mustache David Schneider conversation, I just think he's a really good hitter, and I think he's a guy who can come in, knows his swing extremely well, and a little bit like Danny Jansen in a bit of a parallel way, just a guy who knows what he's good at and does it. I love to see that from a hitter, and I think that on days he's not playing, this is for today, but next season and beyond, I think he's going to be a very good pinch hitter in his career because of how uh, individual and how, how well he knows his own approach coming off the bench. Oh, for two so far as a pinch hitter, but yeah, you, you can only, uh, that, that's not enough of a sample here uh, to really judge. And of course in his small and uh, major league baseball window this year, he absolutely mashed lefty. So I'd be curious to see how that one plays out a little later today. If it comes up, Keegan, we've spent a lot of time talking about the lack of offense here, and that's because the Blue Jays lost 3-1, and Kevin Gosman never gets run support. And even though, as James and T.O. on Twitter provided us with the stat head query, you know, the Jays had more games and a, and more wins in games where they allowed three runs or fewer. This is how they are built to win a 4-3 game if they need to build a 4-3 game. Um, so that's why we're talking about the lack of offense here. There was also... A path last night where we would have led talking about Kevin Gosman and Kevin Gosman would have been the big story because like happened last year and like happened the year prior when he was with the San Francisco Giants, Kevin Gosman didn't have the best of wildcard series performances here. Um, or, or I guess in 2021, it would have been uh, NLDS, not wildcard, but still uh, not a great performance from Kevin Gosman early we heard a lot leading into this one about the Twins' history against Kevin Gosman. They'd seen him four times over the last two years. In three of those instances, they did a great job laying off the splitter when it was out of the zone. Um, yesterday, you know, the splitter location wasn't particularly sharp. The splitter movement wasn't as, uh, it, it didn't break as much as we're used to seeing. Of course, Kevin Gosman also finished his outing with three straight strikeouts on the splitter just to make sure this is a messy narrative. Um, but what did you make of how the Twins handled Kevin Gosman and how he executed or didn't in response to what the Twins were doing? Yeah, they, they had a great game plan against Kevin Gosman, and that's the one small risk with Kevin Gosman. If we get really annoying and dig down on Gosman, everyone has one potential weakness. Jacob deGrom has it. Every pitcher has it. And with Kevin Gossman, he's a guy who was the right choice for game one. Fantastic season, incredible pitcher. But we have seen it a couple of times where an opposing lineup 
will either be holding off on his splitter or have a very good game plan against it. And he is someone who pretty much goes fastball splitter. And John Schneider said after the game that Gosman's splitter was not carrying the zone, which is wording we hear sometimes after these outings. And for people listening, that means that the splitter needs to look like a strike, look like a strike, and then drop out of the strike zone at the very end. Instead, when it looks like a ball out of his hand, it's only going to become more of a ball. You're not going to get those swings and misses that he eventually got in that final inning. So it was a tough one for the Blue Jays. They were warming guys. I think it went Cabrera, Tim Meza, Jimmy Garcia, those first few innings, just in case. And it looked like Gosman had to battle through it. I also do not know how it feels for 40,000 people to be talking <laughs> my name. That can't feel great, you know. It's a, a tough environment. That stadium was incredible to be in yesterday. So this was a, a matter of a game plan that was so well executed. You saw it from the very start with Julianne with the leadoff walk there. That set the tone for who the Twins were. And it's good to be patient. We've seen that, but you have to do damage. And in a game where neither team exactly tore it up, the team that hit for more power won. That's how it's going to go in, in these tight games sometimes. And, Gossman eventually found it, but uh, like you said as well, there's only been a couple of pitchers in Major League Baseball with less run support. Uh, Between this and the BABIP year last year, Blake, (laughs) I I don't know what Gossman did in a past life, but uh, maybe next year will be the year he he gets out from these strange curses. Yeah, and it it happening to like the nicest guy on the team is uh, is a bit of a a bit of an odd one. So uh, Gossman gets the hook after four, even though he'd struck out three in a row on the splitter in the fourth inning. John Schneider looks at it, says, hey, I've had guys up in the pen. This is a third time through the order at the top of the order, no less. Probably doesn't want Gosman to see Royce Lewis a third time. So he goes to the pen and five different relievers cover four shutout innings. They did the job as much as people and I was quibbling in real time a little bit, or at least working through the decisions in my head. You know, John Schneider got four more innings out of that bullpen uh, shutout. They kept the lead at, they kept the score at three, which is all you can really ask from a results perspective. And none of those guys threw too, too many pitches. Jordan Hicks threw 25. So he's probably, I, I know John Schneider said he's available today. He's probably yellow or like a pale yellow, at least on the board. Um, everyone is available today except for Kevin Gosman. What do you think John Schneider's eagerness to go into some of the less expected names will be? Obviously, if Jose Barrios just pitches unbelievably, that is going to inform some of this. But if Jose Barrios is having, you know, an average start where he's headed for, say, three earned over over five and change or something like that, how quick do you think the hook is going to be today? And how likely do you think it is that we see one of the other starters in this game at some point? Yeah, I think they might be warming up right now, frankly. I think John Schneider is going to be very ready. It would stun me if Jose Barrios sees anybody a third time today. And if you can max him out, get some of that strikeout ability he has, he showed in his last start early on, that's where you want him. Mow through that lineup once, see what you get on them twice. But the Blue Jays can be aggressive as they want with this bullpen. And this bullpen is so good. What they showed yesterday, Chad Green especially, that just impressed me so much. Uh, Coming back from TJ like he did and ramping up to be ready for a moment like that, he looked fantastic. This bullpen needs to be given the chance to shut down some wins. You know, it's 
I think back to the 2021 offense that I mentioned earlier, Blake, I think that's one we're going to talk about for a long time. If you don't get this rotation and this bullpen past a two-game wild card, that's going to be a paragraph I write in stories for 10 years. You know, what if this 2028 team had that 2023 pitching staff? Remember them, how great they were, one of the best in Blue Jays history. You need to get them further than this because it's such a talented group. That's up to the offense, but I trust that bullpen. Obviously, the Blue Jays rotation has been incredible this year, but they uh, need some support because they are holding up their end of the bargain over and over. Okay, so last potentially last game of the season, we're in full smoke them if you got them territory. There is no tomorrow if you don't win today. Um, you know, I think the way I asked that question and the way you uh, answered it there, what, I think we were probably keeping Kikuchi more in mind than Chris Bassett, but John Schneider still hasn't revealed the game three starter. Do you think it's possible that that is, you know, it's, it's not a Kikuchi or it's both if this game goes a certain way? Definitely possible that it turns into a both situation. Kikuchi's the interesting variable for me just because of how the Twins build their lineup. They have so many platoons. They are a little better hitting righties than lefties, generally speaking. So Kikuchi would line up a bit better just based on his handedness. Now, you say Kikuchi has been one of the stories of this season. He's been fantastic. He has showed everyone what it looks like when a pitcher gets confidence. He's been fantastic. But he has been in such a routine. If you throw him into the bullpen, he trots out in the fifth inning today. Is he going to look like his 2023 start herself? Or would you rather trust a reliever in that spot and have Kikuchi for a potential tomorrow? You know, is his upside higher than going to Mesa, Chad Green again, Jimmy Garcia, Swanson? That's a big decision based on matchups, and I think that's when you get really drilled down, Blake, into what these front offices look at, even beyond handedness. Is a hitter particularly susceptible to high fastballs? Do they have a swing plane that makes them struggle against a splitter from Eric Swanson, et cetera, et cetera? There's going to be a lot of uh, scenario planning to borrow a, a buzzword from MLB front offices here. And, man, oh, man, I think they'll be aggressive. But Kikuchi, and I said this before the game yesterday, and it's only gotten more interesting. I think he's the the mystery piece in all of this, what you do with Kikuchi. It's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. And like you said, they they structure their lineup, or at least did yesterday. Lefty, switch hitter, righty, lefty, lefty. And at least two of those guys are guys that if it goes lefty, lefty, they're going to yank them for a pinch hitter. So there's also a scenario, you know, Barrios goes twice through. Kikuchi gets the lefty part of the order so that when the righties come around in leverage, they're facing righty, righty instead of those same lefties, which we saw play out a, a little bit yesterday as the game went on. Fascinating chess match here. Uh, Fascinating chat with you as always, Keegan. I know you got to head down to the ballpark. Have a great day. You got it, buddy. We'll talk soon. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com of BlueJays.com. Uh, next time we talk to Keegan Matheson, maybe it's about Ricky Tiedemann's really good start in the Arizona Fall League yesterday. Uh, let's hope not. Let's hope it's about an ALDS uh, series that would require the Blue Jays to win today as Jose Barrios takes on Sonny Gray. 438 first pitch on Sportsnet, on Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet App, Sportsnet Plus. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a big one. It's now or you're done. J Stock Plus isn't done. We get uh, we get a show tomorrow, no matter what. 
we get another hour of this show. So we're going to take a break. On the other side, uh, Madison Shipman will join us. And we'll have Mike Petriello later in the hour as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake. I'm Blake Murphy. I'm still here. I'm all right. Jeez. Uh, Way to go, Blake. Uh, yeah, Toronto Blue Jays have uh, apparently have my voice in a in a bad way here. They lose yesterday, three to one. They're down one game to nothing in this best two game out of three wild card series in Minnesota. Back here in Toronto, Madison Shipman was holding it down on Blue Jays Central with Joe Siddle and with Jamie Campbell. She joins us now. Madison, good morning. How you doing? I am doing really well. How are you, Blake? I'm good. Uh, voice crack there off the top aside. Uh, we'll we'll push through. Um, before we get into some of the specifics, uh, obviously. You played. You have a lot of playing experience. A must-win game situation and not the, hey, it's August and we've lost four or five kind of must-win that gets thrown around. Literally must-win or your season's over. Uh, any sort of superstition or routine change or anything like that for you on a day like today? Uh, you know, I was actually a very superstitious player about certain things. I had certain routines that I did every single day. So I made sure that I still did those superstitions. Even if we had a bad day the day prior, um, I would still go out there and do my individual superstitions. But I do feel like when it comes to postseason games, there is this extra element of butterflies in your stomach, if you will. Um, and I think it's important to realize that, that those feelings are okay and those feelings are normal, but how can you get those butterflies to fly in formation is what my coaches always used to say. So knowing that those feelings are all right, but channeling them into focus, and that's what I always tried to do was really channel all of those emotions into focus. Maybe it was a specific game plan up at the plate or something specific when it came to a defensive shift that I would put all of my focus in. I mean, those were some of the ways that, you know, I could try to help my mind not let the moment get too big because, of course, you know how much is weighing on you when you come into a game like today with your entire season on the line, but you don't want to let those negative thoughts intrude into your mind too much. So it's transferring that energy in a different direction, a more productive direction to hopefully get things back on track. Easier said than done, but yeah, that's got to yeah. be uh, that's got to be the goal with it here. Um, so, Madison, when you were playing, you were also a, a pretty tremendous shortstop, and I want obviously yesterday there are a lot of good plays. There's the nice play at first on George Springer's would be single through the right side in the ninth. There's a nice play from Michael Taylor Jr. in center. Royce Lewis hits two home runs, but I mean, not to answer the question for you, that Carlos Correa play to throw Bo Bichette out at home in the fourth inning is that play of the game for you? Oh, absolutely. And just looking at where Carlos Correa was even playing before that ball was put into play, uh, Bo Bichette over at second base, Correa was pretty much playing behind Bo Bichette when he was taking his lead off. So that's how far up the middle he was playing. And he was reacting to it just about as slowly as it was hit into the infield. And then he turned on the Jets as soon as he realized it got past the third baseman. But when it look when you look at that play from Bo Bichette, I know it's easy to look back and see how far he was thrown out by and say, oh, he shouldn't have gone. But that's a play where it's all just driven by instincts. And as soon as Bo Bichette saw that he might have an opportunity to score, he went ahead and took it. And it was going to take a perfect play and a perfect throw from Carlos Correa to get him out. 
and he was able to execute that. And making a throw like that is not easy when you're running towards that third baseline, having to throw back across your body, get that throw to the catcher in time to get the shed out. So I don't fault Bo for, for trying to take a chance and trying to score on that play because it was going to have to take a perfectly executed defensive play to get him out. And you got to tip your cap to Carlos Correa because he was able to do exactly that on a play that is not easy, especially where he started out to begin that play, all the way pra- practically playing in center field, it almost seemed like at one point. And by the way, recovering from plantar fasciitis still. It's uh, This oh, is also... Yeah, go ahead and throw that in there too. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's pretty ridiculous. And Bobachet, of course, a shortstop, probably has an idea of how difficult uh, a play that would have been. Um, so we can understand that one. And, and Bobachet basically said after the game, exactly what you just said, Madison. He thought he was going to... He thought he had a chance to be safe. He thought Correa would have to make a terrific play to get him out. And that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, more generally, though... The Blue Jays have had a tough season when it comes to those type of plays and those type of decisions. At this point in the year, is that something you personally, you know, were, were you in that clubhouse or you as a player would have maybe found yourself being a little bit more conservative with at this point in the year? Even though obviously offense is at a premium for this team, they've struggled to score. Um, they have not been particularly successful in those moments, though. Would that affect your decision making, do you think? I think it would be hard for me to go into a playoff game and try to be less aggressive, Uh if that makes sense. I feel like you always want to be aggressive. Now, you want to be smart at the same time. I mean, I don't think that that was a decision that Bo took lightly, um, but I I just always like to err on the side of aggressiveness. Now, of course, like we said, looking back on that play, it's easy to say, hey, the smart thing would have been to just go ahead and stay at third base and try to pass the bat along to your teammate. But with the way that the the Blue Jays have struggled with runners in scoring position at times, maybe that kind of led Bo to be a bit more aggressive in that situation. But really what it came down to, to me, was him reading speed and direction of the ball, knowing Carlos Correa is coming off of an injury, knowing where he was playing at the beginning of that play before the ball was even put into play. And all of those things factored into his decision to go ahead and try to score on that play. And when you watch the replay, it's such a difficult play for a base runner, too, just because of where the ball was. He almost he didn't just stop once, but he almost had to stop twice to turn around and see where the ball was before he decided to take off. And at the time that he turned back, there was nobody even close to touching the ball. So I, I still think that I, I like the aggressiveness when you come into a game like even today, you can't just sit back and hope the game comes to you. You still have to have an aggressive mindset, whether it's base running up at the plate, out on the pitcher's mound defensively. I don't like the idea of coming into games like this and trying to rein back that aggressiveness, but I like the airing on aggressiveness, going out there, playing smart, um, but still going out there to, to attack the game every single pitch. Because if you sit there and let the game come to you, that's when a team like the Twins is going to take full advantage of it. And Bo certainly had that aggressiveness at the plate, as we've come to expect from Bo. You know, the single that had put him on base in that situation was on a sweeper that was way outside of the zone, but he thought he could, you know, put a bat on it. And then his other single was an OO pitch that, you know, change up that sat a little too much of the plate. So um, Bo certainly aggressive at the plate as well as on the bases there. A bit of a rough night for the Blue Jays elsewhere in the lineup though Kevin Kiermeyer had a two-hit game but the Jays only mustered uh, 11 base runners in the game and that's which are with a reach on error that's with a, a hit batsman so uh, only one of those come through Madison we've we've told this story 
uh, a bunch of times over the years. The the Jays bats just kind of couldn't come around, especially uh, it's, it especially comes up when Kevin Gosman's on the mound for whatever reason. Um, John Schneider said after the game that he thought they adjusted well to Pablo Lopez as the game went along. Obviously, the runs didn't follow that. Um, did you would you agree with that? Did did you see some good process things, even if we, you know process doesn't keep us warm on Thursday if they're not playing still? <laughs> I think there there were times where you had flashes of some good at-bats. I mean, you mentioned Bo getting those hits in the fourth and the sixth inning. Now, he's not one that's going to go up there and take a lot of pitches. He's going to swing at pitches that are outside of the zone because his bat-to-ball skills are incredible, and he can hit pitches that are in the left-handed batter's box and find a way to drop them out into the right field gap. But the, the inning that stands out to me that I really think was the difference maker in the game was actually after Pablo Lopez had exited the game, but it was that eighth inning. And I, I'm glad he came up and made a good adjustment on a 97-mile-per-hour fastball up and away. And that was a pitch that he just missed earlier in the game. Uh, I believe it was his uh, fly ball out to right field in the fourth inning um, that he got a similar location on a fastball that he just got jammed up a bit. Um, and didn't get quite all of it. I thought he came up in the eighth against a different pitcher, made a nice adjustment, got a bit more extension, and had a much more powerful drive into that right center gap. But it was the three quick outs right after that, to me, that were the difference maker in the game. And Bo striking out on a sweeper way, way low and outside. Uh, Kevin Biggio coming up and just watching a, a couple of strikes go right down the middle, and then Alejandro Kurt coming up and swinging at, I believe it was a fastball outside to ground out to the right side of the field. Those are the times when you get a leadoff runner on, especially a leadoff double. That's when you want to keep the pressure on the pitcher. And at times, I find that when you start swinging outside of the zone or even taking pitchers down the middle that you would normally swing at, um, those are the times where you give a bit more of that momentum back over to the opponent's side. And, and the game is all about a swing of energy and a swing of momentum. And oftentimes, it's just one pitch that can completely change the, the direction of a game. And in that inning, I just felt like those two consecutive strikeouts followed up by the quick ground out. It just really sucked the air out of that entire Blue Jays dugout in that eighth inning. Yeah, that's a, a tough one to come back from. And, you know, certainly with, with Bo Bichette at the plate, you're not going to, hey, throw a bunt down or something like that. He, he has yeah. led the American League in hits three years in a row. Uh, I think you're going to trust that guy to, to, you know, get a hit and keep that moving along. But as those three things kind of snowball together yeah it's a it's a tough one to come back from and then oh by the way it's Yoan Duran coming in who throws 103 <laughs> with arm side movement uh good luck with that um so okay tonight's gonna be uh this afternoon rather is going to be a different challenge Sonny Gray is no less effective than Pablo Lopez but he comes about it a very different way he'll throw six pitches kind of use them all over the zone, um, five of them to righties. He'll throw all six to lefties at times. Uh, the one thing he really does have in common, though, with Pablo Lopez is they both rely on that sweeper a lot for swing and miss. And that's kind of been an on vogue pitch this year as more pitchers have tried to develop something to, you know, complement their slider or their curveball or something like that. Um, in, in Sonny Gray's case, hitters have hit 097 against it this year and swung and missed at it over 40% of the time. Um, why do you think, I mean, sweepers in general, but particularly that breaking pitch from Sonny Gray is such a difficult offering? 
Yeah, he's he's a pitcher that has a lot of spin on his pitches, and he really seems to embrace the fact that he's just trying to get you off time enough to where you're mishitting pitches, and then when you start to look for some of those breaking balls, especially for a right-handed batter, if you go up there with the mindset like, hey, I'm going to try to take away that breaking ball away, that's when he starts to throw that sweeper that's got a little bit more bite to it. Um, but it, it's definitely a popular pitch, and even for, for Pablo Lopez, that's a pitch that he added into his arsenal, I believe, this season. Uh, and it was uh, a pitch that he added because he wanted something that was going to move a bit more east to west because he was primarily a north and south pitcher. So just adding that extra element of movement in a different direction, that adds another pitch that the opponents are going to have to prepare for. Um, And it's ultimately a different swing path too. And that's one of the reasons why Sonny Gray's so effective because he has so many different pitches that move in so many different directions that as a batter, you have to decide which direction you want to aim your barrel at, whether you're going to try to get underneath of a pitch or if you're going to try to almost inside out one of those breaking balls diving down and away from the right-handed batters, you almost have to make that decision before he even releases the pitch. Um, And it's not going to be groundbreaking stuff that you're going to hear from me, but I really feel like for Sonny Gray, you have to try to lay off the breaking balls down in the dirt. And again, easier said than done when he's somebody that, has uh, such good control, such good command, and such late movement on a lot of his breaking pitches. But he wants you to swing and miss at that sweeper. He wants you to go after the pitches that are tumbling down into the zone. If you can lay off of those pitches, that's when you're going to start to see more fastballs or he's going to make a mistake with his breaking balls by bringing it up into the zone more, making it a lot more hittable. So, again, I know you've heard it before, but it's going to come down to plate discipline. Not reining back on the aggressiveness, I still love, the aggressive mentality. If you see a good first pitch, you go up there and hammer it, but you've got to be disciplined on the low part of the zone and know that if it's coming in starting about mid thigh or even knee high, those are going to be the pitches that are going to drop down and end up in the dirt by the time you decide to swing. So just being a a much more efficient with the pitch selection up at the plate, making sure that you're keeping the pressure on him when he's out there on the mound and not giving him too many easy outs and making him feel comfortable out there. So Chris Bassett probably can't help with the, you know, identifying the spin at that level thing. Nobody spins the ball better than Sonny Gray. Nobody has a better result on breaking pitches this year than Sonny Gray, really. Um, But when it comes to the fact that he is going to mix and match six different pitches and throw, with the exception of the sweeper, which you just described, kind of where he's trying to locate it, the other ones he'll move around the zone a little bit. Do you think a guy like Chris Bassett in the dugout can be a help to these hitters, kind of thinking through the chess match side of what a six-pitch pitcher might be trying to do against a team like the Jays? Yeah, I definitely think having somebody with his type of mindset in the dugout can kind of help the hitters, even as you get deeper into the ball game too. Maybe there's one pitch that Chris Bassett is noticing that's working a little bit better for uh, Sonny Gray than others. And maybe in that situation, that's kind of a pitch that he thinks, hey, this is something he's going to in certain counts, or maybe when he needs a strike, he's going more to this pitch. I definitely think that's a, a pitcher's type of mindset that can help you into the batter's box. And I always found that I tried to have a, a pitcher's approach in to my at-bats throughout my career too, because at the end of the day, pitchers want to get ahead. They want to try to throw strikes early in the count. That way they can throw some of their, their breaking balls down in the dirt, if you will. So if you go up there with that pitcher's mentality of, hey, he's trying to get ahead with this pitch, he wants to, to get comfortable, he wants to throw a lot of strikes, try to flip the script on him. Maybe go up there and sit on a pitch that you wouldn't normally early in the count to try to take it away early in the ball game, Or just go up there and be very disciplined on that low part of the zone or 
go up there sitting fastballs. If you're somebody that's an extremely good fastball hitter, go up there thinking, hey, at some point he's going to have to throw a fastball if I lay off of those pitches down in the zone and go up there and hammer it. And you even saw an example of that last night. It was, I believe it was the last uh, batter that Pablo Lopez threw to was Kevin Kiermeyer, And throughout the season, Kiermeyer has been such a good fastball hitter. So you would think maybe he would try to stay away from it. But you know what? He threw Kevin Kiermeyer fastball and he drove it into left field. So pitchers make mistakes. They will make mistakes. Um, but it's all just uh, about being in a mindset uh, to be able to capitalize when great pitchers do make those mistakes in these types of games. Yeah, and message received when Yohan Duran comes in and throws Kiermaier three of the big hook curveball in a <laughs> row to to strike him out there. Not gonna not gonna mess around with the fastball in that spot. Um, you you just made a, a case for how the Blue Jays could maybe benefit uh, in terms of their discipline at the plate and their approach against Sonny Gray. And it, it struck me that it sounded an awful lot like what Minnesota was probably talking about coming into Kevin Gosman's start yesterday. So you know Gosman wasn't the Blue Jays scored one run. You, you can't do that and expect to win the game. But Kevin Gosman also struggled more than, than you would hope for your game one starter to struggle. He gives up three over four innings chased after four, um, some trouble, not just uh, locating the, the splitter, but it didn't have quite as much break as we're used to seeing. I, I know some of the talk coming in Madison was, Oh, maybe he, he tips against the twins. The twins have picked something up because of the history there. Um, I'm not sure it, Full disclosure, at the end of the game, I switched over to the other game, so I didn't catch what you and Joe were talking about after the game. Um, but what did you make of that? When I look, um, you know, on the fly, it maybe felt that way. When I look back at the pitch locations of the pitch breaks and things like that, I wonder if it was more just he, it was a, a poor execution day for Kevin Gosman. What did you think of his start and the Twins' approach against him? Yeah, and Joe and I uh, joked, I, I will say that I've spent more time than I care to admit trying to pick Kevin Gosman's pitches <laughs> almost as if I'm going to go up there and hit off of him myself because there was so much hype coming into this series just about how the Twins seemed to have something on Gosman. And maybe they did have something on him earlier in the season, but after watching their at-bats yesterday, I, I was, I'm leaning more towards the side of they just had a really good team approach against him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're going to see the splitter. You know you're going to see the fastball. And it just seemed collectively one through nine that they did a really good job of, again, laying off the splitter that's down in the zone and forcing him to either bring it up in the zone or go after the fastballs, which is what ultimately Royce Lewis ended up hitting both of his home runs on were on fastballs. And, you know, I can get Joe Siddle fired up about the fact that, uh, Royce Lewis is a very good fastball hitter, and yet he's got two fastballs that he hit out of the park. Um, so it's a – I thought it was a game where the Twins just executed a very good collective game plan of forcing Gosman to bring his pitches up into the zone. And now the thought was maybe, you know, if he keeps throwing that fastball low in the zone, will that neutralize the fact that they have to respect that he's going to throw strikes there so you have to get the bat off of your shoulder and take some more hacks at the splitters down? Ultimately, you saw him make that adjustment. I believe it was in the fourth inning where he ended up striking out the side. He brought the splitter up just a bit more. He got a couple of calls low in the zone with the splitter, threw some fastballs low in the zone, and coincidentally ends up striking out all three batters there. Um, so it, it, you saw Gosman make the adjustment in the fourth, but it was just a bit too late. By the, that time, the Twins had already scored those three runs. So I, I'm not convinced after watching yesterday's game that the Twins had something on Gosman's pitches. I just thought they executed a very good game plan against him. And they made him work right from the beginning of the ball game. You mentioned you were trying to you were trying to pick something up as if you were in the box. Yeah. Was that was that something that you were good at as a as a hitter? You could pick something up over the course of an outing. 
Oh, yeah. I, I always thought it was easier to hit if I knew what pitch was coming. And um, I always found that there, and not every pitcher, but but sometimes maybe it was a certain grip that I would notice when uh, the pitcher would go to grip the ball or even shortening up their stride, or maybe one shoulder would tilt up just a little bit higher than others. But it was something that I personally had to see when I was up there in the batter's box. I was never, I, I never really heard anything that was going on around me. Um, but I wanted it. If it was something that I could pick up throughout the pitcher's motion, then I was going to try to use that to my advantage. So tonight, uh, Jose Barrios doesn't have the drawback of, of being primarily a two pitch guy. He's got four different pitches he can go to. Um, we, we, probably expect Royce Lewis doesn't get any more center cut fastballs uh, in in this one. Um, but Barrios has had some struggles with lefties this year. He's improved versus last year, but he did give up 16 home runs to left-handed hitters this year. Um, you know, he was a, a slight negative if we use a stat like run value uh, versus left-handed hitters. And obviously he is had a very good season, which means he's really, really good against righties. Um, but this is a lefty heavy twins lineup. What's front of mind for you with Jose Barrios tonight as he takes the hill? It's still going to be that sinker, and to me, that's been the difference maker in him having uh, much more success against left-handed batters this season than he has had in seasons past, and it's the movement on the sinker. Now, um, I believe it was against the Yankees, his, <clears throat> excuse me, his most recent home run that he gave up against uh, a left-handed batter, and it was actually off of the sinker. Aaron Judge ended up hitting a home run off of Barrios' sinker in the following series. Um, so that does seem to be a pitch that uh, opponents are obviously well aware of, and some batters go up there hunting for that pitch. But I do feel like when it's located in the right spots, um, it's, a, it's a very tough pitch to hit, whether you're right-handed or left-handed. Um, but that's the pitch that's going to be the difference maker. If he can locate it, especially down and into those lefties where it starts almost like it's going to hit them in the left-handed batter's box and it curls over into that strike zone in the low part of the zone, it's a tough pitch to get really solid barrel on. Now, if he has a tendency to leave it up or start it a bit too far um, inside of the plate to where it leaks out over the middle of the plate, that's where he can get into some trouble. But I like the way that Brios has thrown this entire season, just his ability to move balls in different directions. And again, it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having about Sonny Gray, where as a batter, when you've got pitches coming in that are moving in different directions, you have to decide which angle you want to use your barrel to attack that pitch on. Um, and if you end up choosing the wrong direction, that's where you either come around the pitch or you get jammed up on something. And ultimately that's what Brios has done really well in the, the Jays are definitely going to need a really solid start from him again today. And as good as the Twins have been uh, hitting righties with those lefties, they don't hit righty changeups at an elite level. So maybe the changeup playing off of that sinker is uh, is an important one here for Brios as well. Uh, Madison Shipman. I know you said that you were superstitious as a player. Today's an elimination game for all of us too. There might not be a Blue Jays Central tomorrow. You doing anything different on the on the broadcast superstition side heading into this one? You know, I think I might change things up a little bit. Obviously, the pregame meal that I had yesterday did not <laughs> uh, did not work. So I'm thinking I might change up the pregame meal a bit. Who knows? Uh, maybe that might be the ticket that uh, that changes the way that this ball game goes. There you go, or a different set of kicks, or something. I know we can't see them on your center table on, on Blue Jays Central, but we we got to make we all got to do our part and mix it up a little bit today. Uh, Madison Shipman, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. Awesome, thank you. Madison Shipman of Sportsnet of Blue Jays Central uh, again today, 438 first pitch. Ben Wagner and Chris LaRue have it for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network on the television side. It'll be Caleb and Hazel and Arden. 
complimenting Dan and Buck on the call. Blue Jay Central will be Madison, Joe Siddle, and Jamie Campbell. And then we've got Ben and Shia and David Singh writing off of the series as well. So lots and lots and lots of coverage for you. I'd imagine the appetite is a little higher coming off of a W uh, than, a, than a loss, but we'll see. And hey, look, let's, uh, let's try to change the vibes for you at home as well. Starting today at 4.38 p.m., the Toronto Blue Jays are facing off for game two against the Minnesota Twins in the best of three American League wildcard series. The Blue Jays are encouraging fans to grab friends and get next level loud to cheer on the team as they begin the race to bring a World Series championship back to Canada to help fans gear up. They've given us Blue Jays swag packs to give away this week to enter for a chance to win today's text in today's code word Bichette to 590-590. Again, that's Bichette. To 590, 590, you can win a Blue Jay swag pack uh, that hopefully is useful to you for more than just the remainder of today. In a little bit here, we're going to talk to Mike Petriello. We'll take a national look. He did a lot of work teeing up this series over at MLB.com. He's also a Twins uh, fascinating series for Mike Petriello where he does a bunch of Blue Jay Central TV pregame and he does a bunch of Twins radio pregame. Uh, so he knows these two teams really well. We'll talk to him in, in just a minute here. Uh, a note that I kind of joked with Keegan about earlier, but if you are curious about this kind of thing, Ricky Tiedemann made his Arizona fall league debut yesterday. He threw five innings and threw 77 pitches. That's probably the headline item, given how they'd been trying to make sure he gets more innings in and making sure he's built back up as a starter for the near future. Uh, A five inning, 77 pitch stint is on the longer end of what he's been able to do this year. He also struck out seven and only allowed one earned run. So the results were, uh, were there as well, if you're trying to keep up with that, uh, you could just go to MLB.com slash Arizona Fall League. Um, and yeah, you can keep up kind of day to day. Damiano Palmegiani had a, a big first game there. And Ricky Tiedemann's the headline item in the second game, even though he took the hard luck loss. One one run over five innings and you you get hung with a loss. Um, who does he think he is? Kevin Gosman uh, with that level of run support? I kid. Uh, look, we're going to take a break. We're going to continue to tee this one up with Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Take a closer look at Jose Barrios against Sonny Gray tonight. Talk a little bit more about Royce Lewis and why Jose Barrios should probably tread very lightly with his fastball. Mike Petriello next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Mike Petriello has done a ton of great work on Blue Jay Central television pregames this year. He's also done what I imagine is great work. I'm not listening to a lot of Minnesota Twins pregame radio, but he's done a lot of that as well. He is uniquely qualified to have set this series up over at MLB.com. He joins us now. Mike, good morning. How you doing, buddy? Blake, I'm doing great. Did you know that the geniuses at Immaculate Grid have a Blue Jays Twins grid today? I think that's a great idea. Wow. There's a lot of I, fun guys you can pick there. I have not gridded yet today. Usually that's a post-show like unwind kind of kind of thing for me. It's a little, you know, I got to do the prep in the morning. I, I don't want to grid that early, especially if it's a tough one and I'll, I'll like miss the first segment of the show, still trying to figure something out. But yeah, good, good to, for me to, uh, for me to think on here. Uh, I won't ask for spoilers though, but I, I guess, can we use you? 
Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I'm not going to give any names away, but I'll tell you for the Blue Jays Twins square, I got myself a nice 0.1 percenter by going with someone from the very first Blue Jays team. Mm. That's, that's a good hint. Yeah, that's a that's a great hint. Got to got to refresh myself on the expansion draft and what the expansion draft rules even were back then. Um, okay, so last night uh, the Minnesota Twins beat the Toronto Blue Jays. It's their first playoff win since 2004 snaps an 18 game playoff losing streak, which almost seems impossible to have pulled off. Uh, what was, uh, I mean, I guess, first of all, you watched the game, that target field crowd, that energy in there um, felt like a pretty lively place. I don't know that Minnesota always has that reputation because Jays fans travel so well for that game, but that was uh that was a really fun game atmosphere wise. You know, it sure seemed like it on TV. And I know uh, Dan Hayes, a friend of mine who wrote for The Athletic the other day, and he was kind of like, you know, Twins fans, you have to bring it. Like, this is not the time for (laughs) Minnesota nice, as he called it. And, you know, it's been so many centuries, basically, since they last won a playoff game, is what it feels like. And they really did, you know, but it's like, also, how much of that is just based on the team giving them something to cheer for? You know, you've got Royce Lewis hitting two big home runs. You've got Carlos Correa making that wild play to throw out the runner at the plate. Like, you're not going to cheer if there's nothing interesting happening. And for so many years, the Twins in the postseason just didn't give their fans much to be happy about. I think it's clear that changed last night. They also, uh, for a long part of that drought, played in what, for my money, was the worst stadium in baseball, which was the old Triple H Metrodome. And now they have a nice, beautiful outdoor park. It was like 85 degrees yesterday. So they are uh, they are living life. And they got to celebrate early when the Twins went on the board in the first inning. So let's start with Kevin Gosman. Mike, I, I know you tweeted out a graphic of the takes on his splitter from last night. And there was a bunch of talk going in about, you know, whether he was potentially tipping or, or the Twins had something on him, given their ability to lay off chasing the splitter relative to other other teams around baseball but when you watch that one back when you when you look at where those takes came from how much of this was just Kevin Gosman's ability to locate that splitter and have good break on it just wasn't at the level we normally see from Kevin Gosman yeah I think it's mostly that I tend to feel that every time a good pitcher performs poorly in the playoffs the number one thing people go to is well they have something on him right and sometimes it's true but I almost feel like it's a lazy reaction as opposed to you know maybe the good hitting team that made it to the playoffs is hitting well right let's maybe maybe sometimes baseball things happen and a good pitcher isn't great every single time out but I do have something interesting for you because I did tweet about that and then I heard from someone I know who works at the twins and he's like you know we we had a little bit of a tip on Gosman you know earlier in the season but the I thought we saw I'm not seeing it now so I don't know if it's that at all so I think it kind of goes back to a uh, he wasn't locating the splitter super well and b when you think about the home runs Royce Lewis hit they weren't on splitters they were (laughs) sort of poorly placed four seam fastballs middle in that Royce Lewis crushed and I know for a lot of people Royce Lewis is not really a household name but don't forget the man was a number one overall pick the fact that it's taken this long is not because of lack of performance or lack of skill. It's, it's been lack of health. He's been hurt a number of times over the year. This is a top overall pick who is still young enough to be considered a potential future, not just good player, but superstar in this league. Yeah, we've been hearing his name for a long time because he was the number one pick way back in 2017, but he's still rookie eligible. He won rookie of the month last month. Uh, this is still a, a guy with a lot of upside to tap into. And you're right. Those were fastballs that, that he hit out. I could see the argument of, hey, if he was tipping his splitter, it's easier for guys to sit on a fastball. But even then, the first fastball that Royce Lewis hit out, uh, Alejandro Kirk was set up low and outside, and it came right on the inner third.
turned right into, uh, you know, he, he was able to, obviously, because he's a very good fastball hitter, get his hands around on that one and yank it uh, in a hurry. And then the other one was, was kind of center cut and he took it the other way. Um, when you look at how cool a partial season Royce Lewis has had here. Um, Chris Black sent me a, a stat last night that when we look at run value versus fastballs, it's him and Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani up at the top. Maybe that regresses some with more sample, but how special a skill is that for, uh, I mean, not a, not just a young player, just anyone to be able to do that kind of damage and in two very different ways, one plate appearance to the next. I'm a huge Royce Lewis fan, but I don't think I'm ready to start calling him in the same paragraph as uh, Aaron Judge. Just quite <laughs> small yet. sample. Too. Well, yeah, but don't forget too, right? He'd been injured again at mm-hmm. the end of the season. Like yeah. health is, I think, going to be a, a considerable problem for him because it's now not just the major knee injuries. It's now smaller things happening too. Mm-hmm. But that aside, he hadn't played in two weeks. And a lot of the talk was, well, A, will he play? Will he be on the roster? And then B, well, how will his timing be, right? And I, I, the timing worked out. And what's happening here, too, is like if you if you think about the fact that he's a rookie, as you said, having an incredibly strong, uh, at least partial season, what I think most people maybe do incorrectly when you look ahead to postseason series is you look at the two teams and you just look at their full season stats. You know, you say, oh, this team was like the third best hitting team and the fourth best pitching team or whatever. But that doesn't really reflect the rosters you're going to see because so much has changed, you know, maybe less with the Blue Jays because they've had a consistent roster, but a lot of other teams haven't. They've had a lot of turnover. Uh, the Twins are a great example of that because Buxton hasn't done much and Correa hasn't done much. And that's all of a long way of saying is if you look at Royce Lewis and you look at Matt Walner and you look at Edouard Julien, they're the only team ever that have had three different rookies with at least 200 plate appearances and an OPS plus of a 130 or better. This has never happened before, which is absolutely wild to me. You want to see teams that have completely turned around their roster? That's how you do it. And that's before you get to the fact that this is a completely different bullpen than we saw earlier in the year as well, with the exception of Yoan Duran being, uh, you know, unbelievably good uh, as well. They, they've converted some starters. They've added some guys. They've gotten some guys back from injury. Um, we'll get to the, the Twins pitching side in a sec. So yesterday, Royce Lewis hits two home runs. 100% of the team's RBI come via the home run and via Royce Lewis. Um, is this generally how the Twins go about cashing in runs? Yeah, I mean, if you think about this team, they are not, you know, the 2019 Bomba squad that people remember um, because that was also, a, it was a different roster and it was a, uh, let's say, a different baseball going on that year, right? Everybody <laughs> was hitting home runs. Um, but if you look at the Twins this year, they they weren't really a good hitting team in the first half. You know, for the first four months of the season, uh, they were the worst team in baseball at hitting left-handed pitching. For the first half of the season, they were the worst team in baseball uh, bases loaded performance, you know, and it kind of goes, it's similar to what we saw with the twin, uh, the blue Jays where it's like, they were horrible with runners in scoring position until they weren't, you know, some of this stuff, all sorts of works itself out. Uh, so they got new players and that stuff has all turned around. Like because of that, they're a completely different team. And, you know, to go to the home runs, like, yeah, they, they had a, I, I'm not going to count on the air. It's like 12 or 13 different players who hit double digit home runs, which is a lot but zero who hit 25 home runs. So they don't really have like the star star aside from if you want to consider Royce Lewis that now they just have a lot of guys who can put the ball out. I think which is dangerous in a different sort of way than having like the, you know, Matt Olson, 54 home run kind of guy, Uh, obviously that he's the only brave, but you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I do know what you mean. Um, and, and then in terms of, okay, so that, that, that's part of how the, the twins come about it. You, you had a, an RBI staff for them as well, right? 
I sure did. And you know, okay. I can tell you how great this one is because if you know me at all, I am never talking about RBIs because I don't care about RBIs. But uh, you mentioned earlier that I do some work on Twins pregame radio. And so my friend Chris Atterbury asked me to look into this. And it was an incredible stat that I feel obligated to share internationally now. The Twins this year do not have a single player, single batter who reached 70 RBI, right? Nobody. And I was wondering, or Chris was wondering, you know, can a team win like that? When is the last time a team has reached the World Series or won the World Series without a single hitter getting to 70 RBI? And the answer is just about never. Uh, it Nobody has reached the World Series without a 70 RBI guy since the 1938 Cubs. And even that comes with a caveat because they had five guys in the 60s and it was a shorter season back then, right? They would have gotten there almost certainly. Only one team has ever won the World Series without a 70 RBI guy. The 1908 Cubs, the literally tinker to Evers to Chance Cubs. So the Twins are trying to overturn that kind of history. And I get it. It's unfair. Like I said, the rookies came in midseason and they would have had they played all year, but they didn't. And so that's what we're looking at here. I think it's the wildest thing. The top Minnesota twin hitter finished 92nd in runs batted in this year. That was Carlos Correa. Uh, there's obviously the injury element and, and things like that uh, as well. So on the other side of this, you know, the, the twins offense wasn't unbelievable yesterday. Even if we can appreciate the discipline and really appreciate Royce Lewis, they put up three runs. That's a winnable ball game. The Blue Jays have won four, three games all season long. They are the, they were the, Number one team in baseball winning games when they allow three runs or fewer. Scoring only one run, big problem. They'll go from Pablo Lopez to Sonny Gray tonight. Um, what are you looking for with, with Sonny Gray? Obviously, Pablo Lopez gave the Blue Jays uh, a lot of trouble with the fastball change-up sweeper mix. Sonny Gray is going to throw a lot more pitches in, in terms of number of offerings, but it's going to be the sweeper there from a righty that, that's probably front of mind for the Blue Jays against Gray as well. Yeah, this is a slightly imperfect comparison I'm about to make, but I look at Sonny Gray as like mildly better Chris Bassett in a sense where he throws like a ton of different pitches and a lot of spin and he's not afraid to challenge with the fastballs in the zone. And there, I think there's some similarities there. Um, when I look at Gray, the number one thing that, that pops out to me is home runs and the fact that he has not allowed almost any eight home runs in 184 innings is totally elite. It's, it's I believe, the best or second best home run per nine uh, by a qualified starter this year. And if you can just do that, if you can manage to keep the ball in the ballpark and not walk everybody, like almost the rest of it is gravy. I know I'm oversimplifying a little bit there, but it, it kind of comes down to me. If they can hit him hard, if they can get a ball or two out, they're going to be in good shape. And if they don't hit a home run, they're not going to win. And I don't want to oversimplify baseball to home run derby. I know it's wildly more complicated than that. But he's going to throw a lot of first pitch fastballs. He's going to throw a lot of spin all other times. And they got to pop one of them out. Because if that doesn't happen, I think it's over. Yeah, and look, it's not like the Jays are particularly adept at going deep either, right? They're 16th in home runs on the season. Their home run per fly ball is not particularly strong. And yeah, I just brought up the stats. So among pitchers with at least 80 innings this year, uh, Sonny Gray's first in home run per nine with just 0 0.39. Ridiculous. And the next closest is Stroman at 0 0.59. So you're talking about he's he's beating other starters by uh a significant margin here. Um, I saw you, I, I'll ask more specifically about the sweeper just because I saw you tweeting about it and we saw uh, Trevor May and Brent Rooker tweeting about it as well. It, it's kind of been the on Vogue pitch this year, even though it's not, you know, actually really a new pitch. But why do you think so many pitchers have been able to find success with that pitch this year? I think the big difference between now, let me, let me start with this. It's not a new pitch, right? right? You want to tell me that Bob Gibson threw a sweeper back in the 1960s? Like, totally fine. I would absolutely buy it. The only thing new this year is a new label. It's being labeled differently. 
than a traditional gyro slider. And the reason for that is simple. It's because there are so many pitchers who are now throwing both and saying they have both, that they're two different pitch types being used differently. And what, what has changed recently is not that guys are learning how to throw it or able to throw it. It's just that the technology has allowed you to identify what works for that, how to get to some seams of the week, if that's the kind of pitch you're throwing. That's the kind of stuff that wasn't so easy to measure in years past. I, I think also, anecdotally, it's a relatively easy pitch to learn. Like, not every pitcher can learn to throw a good changeup, right? But this seems like the kind of pitch guys can pick up on pretty easily. So the reason that a new label was required was simply it's not the same kind of pitch and to kind of mash everything together and say this is a guy's slider when we know it's a different pitch especially used differently uh, in platoon situations like that's a huge part of it is you throw it differently to different handed batters um, is a big deal and i know a lot of people are get upset that there's a new pitch type as though every pitch type that could exist was invented in 2008 and handed down on a tablet and could never be changed but i would ask you this should every fastball just be called fastball right don't you want to know a four seamer or a sinker i feel like that's a big deal and that's sort of where we're at with this too yeah and then there's the kodai senga of it all is like sometimes it is a new pitch we haven't seen before um yeah with respect to the sweeper someone should have wrote about this for mlb.com and i don't know mid to late april and, and given us all a little primer on what we were seeing and what to expect there too bad no one did that mike yeah no i should go back in time and write the article that i think i did write and um maybe bring it back up today via a self-retweet there you go um okay so let, let's zoom out and there there were three other games and this is a blue jay show but there was a lot going on around baseball and it's important to keep an eye on, you know, trend wise and to, I don't know, just to keep an eye on what's going on. And you tweeted something out before you came on with us here. Uh, just a shocking number about fastball velocity yesterday. 95.6 miles an hour was the average fastball velocity yesterday. 44% of those were 96 or higher, which is way up from even 2010. And you, you know, you made the, the joke about all pitches were invented by 2008 and the tablet was handed down. I, I know there's this discussion sometimes about like, oh, the, the radar technology or how we measure velocity has changed over the years. And like, that's true by the decade, but not since 2010 necessarily. Um, what do we make of that? Like, obviously, we know that velocity has gone up, but for it to be this extreme where 96 is now an average fastball in a playoff game, I don't know, man. It's hard to contextualize that in terms of like, hey, what should a player do at the plate today, um, you know, against the guy who throws reasonably hard? Yeah, I think, I think two things are true here. First, I will totally admit to a little bit of a day one bias there, just in the sense of we're not talking 30 teams, right? We're talking just the teams that played yesterday and just their best starters. Like, for example, Zach Wheeler was throwing 98, but if the Dodgers were playing yesterday and Kershaw was starting and he's throwing 88, that would change things. So, like, I'm totally willing to, to cop to that. But even so, like, this is matched to what we have seen for years and years and years, pitchers are actively trying to throw harder. The the biggest bump I have seen, like the the I think the breaking point, uh, was between 2020 and 2021. Because what we heard from so many pitchers, uh, especially the guys who were not in the majors in 2020, who were not pitching in the minors because there were no minors that year, they were like, "Listen, I spent my whole year trying to get better in non-game situations. Right? I was able to basically use this wasted year as a lab, and I." tried to throw it harder or I tried to learn a new pitch, right? And when you saw a big jump after that, I'm certainly not saying it was a good thing for anything of that year to have happened in any way, but you did hear a lot of guys saying, that was really interesting for me. I took a bad situation and I was able to use it to my advantage by learning how to pitch better in a, with the time I wouldn't have had. And you're really seeing that. And when you think about the way these things are measured, if you want to say that things were measured differently with Bob Feller in the 1950s, like fine, whatever. 
But from 2008 to 2023, it is absolutely consistent. And we are seeing the numbers going up and up and up consistently to the point of, like you said yesterday, 44% of fastballs were 96 plus. And back in 2010 in the playoffs, it was 12%. You know, throw hard. Team goes far. That's how you get these guys in the playoffs. Yeah, it's uh, you know, when in a game where we saw Jordan Hicks and Yoan Duran come out of the out of the bullpen, yeah, it, it certainly felt that way. Uh, other one for you before I let you go here, and I, I did want to do some half trolling Gabriel Moreno stuff, but let's take it to a different catcher in William Contreras. He throws out two base runners yesterday. Uh, base stealers around baseball yesterday went six for eight, so two stolen base attempts per game, slightly higher than the league average. Uh, you like that? Do you think we're going to see more of it? See a little less of it? Too early to tell. I think teams should be a little more aggressive, both both in stealing bases and I think uh, in third base coaches. I think we saw that in a couple of games last night where third base coaches were wildly too conservative. And then Bryce Harper ran through a stop sign and he scored. And I want to see more of that. But to your point about Contreras, um, th- this was maybe my favorite quiet trade, not quiet necessarily because it was the Sean Murphy trade, uh, but of last winter because everybody knew the Braves were going to get Sean Murphy from the A's. And then at the last second, Brewers kind of just snuck in there and got themselves Contreras and a couple of other pitchers, by the way. Joel Payams was in that deal, and he's been a very good reliever for them. And all it cost them was Asturi Ruiz, who has elite speed, stole a ton of bases, not a great outfielder, can't really hit at all. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is an amazing deal for the Brewers to just sneak in here and do this. And it actually worked out better than I thought. Because not only did Contreras have a very good year hitting, he's one of the best hitting catchers in baseball, the Brewers have this reputation as being something of a catching laboratory farm where they can improve catchers, right, in terms of blocking, framing, whatever. And with the Braves last year, he rated as somewhat below average. And with the Brewers, he's now rating as somewhat above average. And you're thinking, I have a catcher who can hit. And he's pretty good behind the plate. And all of a sudden, that's an all-star caliber catcher, which is wild. I loved that trade from day one, and it's paid off even better. Yeah, and two, two caught stealing last night in, in a very fun game. The Bryce Harper run through third was fun. The Bo Bichette run through the sign at third was uh, fun, but it turned out a little less because of uh, Carlos Correa's tremendous play. Mike Petriello, when you set up Jay's Twins at MLB.com, you outlined a number of ways in which this series should be very, very, very close. Um one word answer are we getting game three yes yes we are i believe we are that was a lot of words but yes is one word look you're playing to the crowd you know you know what station you're on you know this isn't twins (laughs) pregame radio it's jay's talk plus Uh, mike petriello of mlb.com and blue jay central later today uh pregame thanks for taking the time out buddy thanks a lot blake enjoy the game Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Again, you can check him out on Blue Jays Central pregame later today. That gets going nice and early to get you ready for game two here where Jose Brios will take on Sonny Gray. So thanks to Mike Petriello. Thanks to Madison Shipman, who's obviously uh, also a part of Blue Jays Central. Thanks to Keegan Matheson. And thanks to Justin Morneau, who is on the Bally Sports North side of this series broadcast. All for coming on today. Uh, It's been a fun show despite, you know, the fact that the Blue Jays lost 3-1 yesterday and now face uh, the end of their season today if it goes that way. So in addition to Blue Jay Central, you'll have that pregame with, with Jamie Campbell, Joe Siddle, Madison Shipman, uh, Mike Petriello, of course, Dan and Buck on the call, Hazel, Caleb Joseph, Ann Arden down in Minnesota reporting, Ben and Shy on the writing side, David Singh on the writing side, uh, Ben Wagner and Chris LaRue on the radio call for you. If you need a little bit more to set you up for this one, if you're just very, very anxious and you don't want to be left with your own Blue Jays thoughts and you'd like to hear someone else's, well, J.D. Bunkus is coming on here in a minute. He'll be on from 12 to 2 
further teeing up this one and breaking down last night's game. Show Ali and Ben Shulman have uh, another round of Jays talk for you from two to four. Blair and Barker will be in the four to four thirty slot doing uh, a proper pregame there. And they will, of course, have Jays talk for you after the game. I did not catch any of that yesterday. I imagine the calls and the text line were on fire, given that that game went how a lot of games went this year. I, I hope you all at least saved yourself the effort to just copy and pasted your messages and your, you can't copy and paste the call, but you get what I mean. Uh, copy and pasted your messages from games that played out like that earlier in the year. Look, the Blue Jays won a lot of games too. So maybe tonight plays out like one of those wins. They'll have Jose Barrios on the Hill. Of course, you're looking at the Royce Lewis matchup and wondering is Jose Barrios going to even bother challenging with the fastball? Do you stay to the changeup, even though Barrios doesn't throw the changeup a ton righty righty? Do you stay with that slurvy curveball, um, which has been so effective? That's kind of front of mind as are Jose Brios is much improved splits against lefties, but still a little homer heavy. Uh, this is a twins team that'll probably start four lefties and a switch hitter. So there'll be five guys hitting from that left side against Brios on the J side. It'll be sunny gray six pitch mix. Uh, if you are a lefty, get ready for that changeup. If you are a righty, get ready for that nasty sweeper. All of his stuff spins like crazy, but He's a guy you can get to. You're just probably not going to get to him via the home run. It'd be an interesting one. The Jays put 11 base runners on yesterday and only scored one of them. They had zero home runs. The Minnesota Twins had two. Uh, that was a big, big factor. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Win or loss. 